Yehuda HaKohen, Brit Chazon Vision Magazine, and this is the Next Edge Podcast. With me here in Boston is Chris Whitman from the Miro Organization. Talk a little bit about Miro, Yeah, sure. So I'm the Director of Development at the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition, uh, where we work on state and national policy to make America a more welcoming. Yeah, we're making great again. Um, we're doing the exact opposite of everything Donald Trump wants to do in immigration, basically. That's an easy way to sum it up. We want more immigrants in this country. We want to provide for them. We want to embrace the diversity we have in this country. When you say, I, I'm not defending Donald Trump no here, worries. but is it fair to, um, to lay all these policies at Donald Trump's door or no. are these policies in place? Some are in place beforehand. Some of them are just manipulations of what was there. So, I mean, an easy one to give an example of is what's going to be the next immigration issue, which is a public charge, um, which is actually a law from um, when the first, the second Irish wave came into America, so the 19-teens. Um, and he's manipulating the, de- the definition of what is public charge to basically keep poorer, browner immigrants out of the country. And this was a tool that was used against the Irish. And he, basically Trump's taken that law, which has been dormant for many, many decades at this point, and reenacting it and making it more stringent. So that's an example of something like, he's, he's coming up with very few original creative ideas, um, things that weren't, haven't been discussed before, haven't been enacted before, but he's definitely making them have more teeth, and he's definitely putting a lot more money and power and uh, investment into them. More so than... Obama or Bush or Clinton? Or definitely Bush. definitely Bush. Um, I mean, Obama was big on deportations. Other than deportations, I mean, we can look at things like DACA. DACA is an, was an Obama policy. Um, TPS was uh, end of Clinton, beginning of Bush, and more or less expanded under every presidency. Can you explain DACA and TPS? Sure. So DACA um, is a deferred action childhood arrivals program. So those people who were children not born in America generally, um, not born in America exclusively, People who came here, um, who came here illegally, undocumented, and basically, you know, grew up here during the times, and so they were—they didn't realize they were—they were undocumented up until generally high school. So when they get to go to take a driver's license, they find out they're undocumented. So there are about eight hundred thousand of these people in the country who, under the Obama's program, ideally, what was going to happen was these people were going to be put on a path of permanent residency and ideally citizenship. We never got there. We're just before the we're just before uh, the permanent residency aspect. So we're basically people that are on, depending on their status, either six, twelve, or eighteen month visas at a time. Not very different from say Eritreans in Israel, for example. Um, people who are on a temporary status and um, DACA is one of those unresolved problems. Um, TPS is temporary protected status. These are people who were living in the country when a natural disaster or war happened in their country. And they basically said, hey, we don't want you going back to this place. Here's temporary status. Um, but the problem is that we've had basically, you know, 20 years more or less for, you know, El Salvador, El Sal- uh, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, Haitians. And these countries are still not safe to go back to. And so Trump wants to present them back. People can't really, no presidency has ever really wanted to take up the issue. And so we're kind of in a, you know, a big mess because of it. Right. And I think uh, something that's often missing from the conversation, and again, I'm saying this is somebody living in Israel who's very far removed from this issue. But one thing that you know, often occurs to me is these countries that we say are, quote unquote, unsafe to go back to, or for the most part, unsafe to go back to because of American policies in those countries and the behavior of American corporations backed by their governments in those countries. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, you could say that you know Haiti, Haiti was a problem in the sense of why TPS existed was because of the, was because of the earthquake and hurricanes that have happened. But in reality, um, 
they're, they're unsafe now to go back to, and they've been unsafe for the better part of, you know, 50, 100 years, depending on what you want to consider unsafe. Yes, because of, um, because of business deals, because of dic- you know, dictators that we've put in place, because of elected governments that we've overthrown. When you say we, you're saying we as an American. Yeah, I'm an American. It's the only citizenship I have currently. Okay. Now, when we met, you were living in Israel. Uh, I was living in I was living in Ramallah. Living in Ramallah. I, I was living in the West Bank. Ramallah, comma, Israel. I mean, sure. If you, it's, it's when those people start getting citizenship, we can call it Israel. Okay. I mean, listen. If we're, I, this is why I say, like I say, you know, I, I always say when people when people ask, like, where do you live? You know, depending on who they are, I'll say I live in the Eretz, uh-huh. like because I see that as a non-sovereign term. I see it as a geographic right. unit in which we're we talking need about. More neutral terms. I mean, the once thing upon is, a time, Palestine is a neutral term. It was once upon a time, right. not like anymore. Palestine, from, from my perspective, Palestine is just like another name for my country. Sure. Yeah. I know. This is a, this is a discussion I have with people. Like, I don't actually care. Like, I'm not. You know, I just think from a realistic perspective. People say, "No, you lived in Israel." I say, "Okay, sure, yeah. whatever. I'm not going to fight you on vernacular." So you're living in Ramallah. Yep. Not too far from me. Correct. Okay. We met how many years ago? 2011. 2011. Okay. So what was that like for you? As a, you were in Ramallah for how did you get to Ramallah? Um, I got to Ramallah, I was uh, doing a master's degree at Hebrew University, mm-hmm. and I lived in Jerusalem for the first about four or five, maybe six months at most. Why did you come to Hebrew University? Why did you come to Israel? Like- sure. Um, so no, I studied Middle Eastern Studies for my bachelor's degree, and um, I decided I wanted my master's, my master's in the Middle East, so mm-hmm. I applied to Damascus, Beirut, Cairo, um, Amman, um, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and um, Beersheba. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Honestly, Hebrew University offered me the most money to go there. I actually okay. had a pretty much free degree, so I decided to go there. That was a little bit of a mental block for me. I mean, by a little, I mean, I took about three months, like, really thinking about whether or not I wanted to go to Israel. Because for me, like, Israel was, you know, BDS. You don't, you don't go to Israel. Mm-hmm. You don't even, you know, you can go to the border, but you don't go there until it's liberated. Like, that was kind of my mindset at the time. So you kind of violated your BDS oath by coming I did. to Israel. No, so what I did was I actually messaged three Palestinian Americans that I knew and three Palestinians in the territories who I knew through friends, and I asked them their opinion on it. What would you do if you were me? Mm-hmm. And the three Palestinian Americans said, BDS, BDS, BDS. And I was like, okay. I asked the Palestinians who lived in the West Bank, and they all said, go. I said, really? They said, yeah, go. We would go if we could. So why shouldn't you go? I said, you because sure? They can't. Right, because I know they couldn't. Um, they're saying, no, you know, meaning like in the answer, why you shouldn't go is because... Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, and I said that to them, and they were like, no, they said, you, you should go, but just, you know, use your, use your privilege mm-hmm. for a positive. Don't go there, you know, and start wearing an IDF shirt. Don't go there and start, like, you know... So I put rules and conditions on my going. I said, listen, okay, I'm going to learn Arabic first. I'm going to do my best to live in, an, in a Palestinian neighborhood. I'm going to do my best to only buy Palestinian products. I will do my best to, you know, spend my money in Palestinian spaces as much as I can. Like, I only deal with Israel as an ent- economic and, you know, entity when I have to. Mm-hmm. And so I moved, so I lived in Jerusalem. I hated it mm-hmm. um, at the time. I was always roomed with, like, these wannabe Olim types. Um, and it just wasn't much fun just hearing them justify, you know, atrocities all night. So I decided to move to Ramallah. And so I moved to Ramallah, and I think it was May of 2010. Okay. And, uh, and you preferred it there. Oh, yeah, I loved it. I mean, in addition to, like, you know, cheaper rent and all that. Um, yeah, no, I loved it. I loved being in a Palestinian space. I loved, I loved the, the life, the socialization, the friends-making, the things to do. Um, I, you know, I learned how to get around. I learned how to, I learned Arabic because of it. I, you know, I, I learned, I learned very little in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. East Jerusalem Palestinians are very skeptical of non-Palestinians speaking Arabic. 
Um, they're always afraid that you're mukhabarat, like you're a secret service, or that you're um, like CIA types. Like they think that you're Shin Bet, basically. So like that was really hard. Whenever I tried to speak Arabic, they'd always start speaking Hebrew or English for me. But in Ramallah, they're like, you know, they're happy to speak Arabic. They're like, yeah, sure. What do you want to know? So, okay. yeah. And you were uh, injured. Yeah. Early on in your stay. Yeah, in uh, in May 13, 2011, mm-hmm. um, at a demonstration in Nabi Saleh, which is a village just north of Ramallah. It's next to Khalamish, Nabi Suf. Um, so. Yeah, so I was shot by Israeli soldiers on May 13th in 2011. I was shot in the head from uh, about 50 feet away with a cylinder tear gas canister, one of those steel ones. I hurt like hell. It's the, most pain, it's the worst pain I've ever had in my life. And I've broken many a bones in my life, mm-hmm. playing sports and whatever else. I was, un- I was conscious the whole time. You were. I remember it vividly, the whole thing. It's one of those things like I, have, I, I go to a shrink, obviously, and I had to, I'm doing a PTSD st- test for... Uh, for Mass General, and uh, they're like, "Can you tell us the whole story?" I said, "Yeah, sure." They said, "You have no, you have no lapses." I said, "No, I can vividly reenact this whole thing for you." It's the unfortunateness of having been conscious the whole time. So you were shot in the head with a tear gas canister. Yep. Point blank range, essentially. Yep. yep. I filmed it happen. Okay, and you uh, maybe we can include that film in the show notes. Yeah, sure. Okay. It's on YouTube. No problem. And you went to a Palestinian hospital? Yeah, this was one of the stupidest things I ever did. Um, is this part of boycotting Israel? It, it wasn't, no, it wasn't that. I was already living there. I was going to Hebrew University. I mean, I, I think my boycott card was kind of revoked at that point. No, it was more of, I, I didn't trust him at the time. I didn't, have very, I didn't have many friends in Jerusalem who I could call and come translate or take care of it. I, I legit thought that if I went there, that they would try to maybe sign a document in Hebrew before I got any treatment, something that exonerated the IDF. I was convinced of this. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't want to deal with this crap. Take me to the Palestinian hospital. And they're like, are you sure? I said, yeah, take me to the Palestinian hospital. That was stupid. It was, a, it was, it was dumb. Um, the treatment care levels are just not remotely close. I mean, they, they joke that the, they call Ramallah Hospital Mulahameh, uh, which means like butcher, because you don't go in with the same amount of limbs as you came in with. Like, that's a joke in Arabic. What do you think it is? Lack of funding? Um, it's lack of funding. It's also just, um, it's a lot of bureaucracy. It's a lot of, it's, it's, a lo- it's everything. There's nothing that's run well about it. There's no, like, you know, there's no good residency programs. There's not, like, so many people just become disillusioned and just open their own practice. There's no money in it. Like, if you want to become a doctor in, in, in a, you know, in a hospital or public sector, I mean, you're going to get paid not much more than teachers, and teachers are only paid, like, 2,200 shekels a month. Right. It's a civil service job. It's a civil service job, yeah. Right. Okay, so then we meet shortly after that. Yeah, it was a few. It was a, I think it was like six months after that. Okay, so how were you introduced to me? Um, by a mutual friend of ours, David. He uh, he was leaving Jerusalem at the time. He was a, he was, we were both at the university, and he messaged he messaged both of us, and he said, Yehuda, Chris, Chris, Yehuda. Who did you think you're coming to meet? He introduced us first, and then he told me about it. He wrote to us saying, like, Listen, you two are the same exact people. You guys are fighting for the same thing. You guys believe in the same thing, but you come at it from two wildly different perspectives. You each have your block that you consider your people or what you're fighting for, and you are ideological to your core. That being said, you're exactly the same person as well. You're either going to love each other or hate each other, but just know you're the same person. And then he messaged me and he said, hey, just so you know, Yehuda is a settler in Beit El. Um, I told him that you live in Ramallah. Um, let me know how it goes. <laughs> that was really about it. Okay, so what were you thinking when you heard that? Um, my initial reaction was like, I no, I'm not. I'm no, no, thank you. I'm not going to go meet with a settler. Harsh <laughs> word, settler. 
I don't really negative connotations in English, huh? And so he told me, he said, listen, he lives in Beidou. He goes, I vouch for him. And like one of the things that you have to understand when you're living over there that's very hard for people is like this vouching system. People don't really understand in America. People are like, they think that meeting somebody once and, you know, vouching for them is like really cool or like super important. As opposed to over there, when you're vouching across ethnic lines, like that's really means a lot. Like that's a really big block. That's like, that's what people have. And like that kind of, it's like, a guest system where you're like you're saying like I vouch for this person I stand by them you have, don't have to worry about yourself like that was really big for me because I was I was concerned like I was worried like safety. yeah I was concerned for my safety at first I was like I don't want to go to the settlement I had I still had the bandage on my head when we were talking when we first met yeah and so like I messaged you I said hey did you see David's message you said yeah I said okay so like do you want to come meet and you said you said uh, how about Sha'ar Ben Yamin I said, the industrial zone? He goes, yeah. You said, yeah, there's a nice cafe and whatever else we can hang out. And I said to you, yeah, I'll go if you, if you pay for the coffee. Because I, I didn't want to spend any money on the... On the it's, a, it's a settlement industrial zone, cafe, um, Robin Levy, like the grocery store, whatever it's else. A, it's a shopping center. It's a shopping center, yeah, thank you. industrial zone, close to Ramallah. Yeah, yeah. It, it's obviously like Area C, yep. run by Israel. But it is a place where Palestinians and Jews uh, are able to work and shop. Correct, yeah. Meaning it's, uh, so it's as close as you can get to neutral territory sometimes. Well, under the sometimes, yeah. Under the Oslo conditions, it's probably some of the most neutral territory you can find, even though it's not very neutral. I, I, I agree, yes. And so, yeah, so we met there. And I think we were both doing the same thing to each other. We were both, like, testing each other. We were both trying to, like, push each other's buttons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we both were staying hard to our vernacular. Well, and, you know, we're, uh, I don't remember the exact conversation, but uh, so, so now let me ask you a question. You, yeah. Since then, this is a few years ago already, you've Eight been involved years. in some of the things that we've done. Yep. Uh, you've come and spoken on some of our programs. Uh, you've given tours to a lot of our students. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you say that your politics have shifted at all as a result of your involvement with our work? Um, I, would say that they, I would say that your work has a lot of has really opened me up to understanding the, let's say, the, the, the diversity of the Israeli spectrum. Because I think for a lot of us living in Ramallah, we, mono, we, we create in a monolith, whether that be the settlers or whether that be Israelis in general or, you know, um, whether that be observant Jews, what does it matter? There's, we, we create mentally monoliths within them that they're all the same. They're all the same of this one thing, whatever it is. We do it in the think. opposite. We have of course. Hamas and the, yeah, yeah, we have. Exactly. Right. Um, most people can't tell you the difference between Dati Lomi and Kharadi, but, you know, whatever. I, I lament. The colors. <laughs> I know. Like, for me, it's super obvious. Uh-huh. And, I, and I actually, like, gave a lot of tutorials and classes to people to try to differentiate based off of clothes and kippahs and things like that. And they're like, I don't even see a difference. I'm like, no, they're, like, they're all black and white. I was like, oh. All right, anyways. Um, so, no, it definitely changed my perspective. It, it helped illuminate and it helped understand better kind of what there is for like I, again just like we create monoliths based off of their per, their appearance we create monoliths based off of their politics yeah. so i so you know my assumption was you know all gun toting kippa wearing you know cc flailing bearded you know the next baruch goldstein basically like that's how that's that's the image that we get in ramallah mm-hmm. that when i was living there you know, that's the monolith that we create of settlers. All right, Chris, i got to stop you right there because I really take offense to that word settler. Mm. I think it has really negative connotations in English. It really grates on me every time I hear it. You know, I'm okay with the word mitachel. 
which is you know the Hebrew word for Jews living in the West Bank. But we got to find another English word. We got to find another word that's less offensive because settler really has this connotation of being somewhere you don't belong. Mm-hmm. Whereas most Jews living in the West Bank are fully self-identifying as deeply connected to the lands where we're living. Mm-hmm. Like we don't see ourselves as coming as settlers in terms of what settler means in the rest of the world. We see ourselves as really coming back to a land we were displaced from and fighting in order to not be displaced again. I think that's probably like the common denominator of all the Jews living in the West Bank. I think there are Jews in the West Bank who are living as settlers, unfortunately. Yep. But for me, the, uh, a key goal, I think, at this point is to try to figure out a way for Jews to live in the West Bank without living as settlers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why you and I have been connected for so long, because I remember one of the first questions you asked me was, you know, is your antagonism against the, the Mitnechel movement or the Mitnechelim, is your problem with that that it's Jews living, in, Jews living in the West Bank? Or is it the process in which it happened and the process in which keeps it in place? And, and how I, it impacts Palestinians. Exactly. And I, and I said, well, it's obviously much, it's much more so the latter. I don't have a problem with Jews living in the West Bank. Um, that doesn't bother me. That doesn't, you know, hurt my core, you know. Um, I think I also asked you the same question about Israeli sovereignty in the West Bank. Correct, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like, are you opposed to Israeli sovereignty in the West Bank, or is it how it impacts Palestinians or how they're excluded from it, etc.? Correct, exactly. So this is, why, this is one of the things I'm always torn about. Whenever the news comes out, you know, of Israel saying, oh, the government wants to annex X, Y, and Z, and I would say, before I used to be that person, I would share the article and go, oh my God, look at Israeli colonization of Palestine, blah, blah, blah. But now I cheer it on and I say, okay, great. Like, cause I see no route. I, cause you and I both believe in one state ultimately. And I don't see a route to get there that doesn't involve Israeli annexation of some sort or Israeli moves to apply sovereignty X, Y, and Z. But the question is, how are we going to do it? And then what are the Palestinians going to be in that whole process? Right. And can we do it in a way that just not like a finger in their eye? Right. And I would say today, no. Well, I, I mean, is, is, is it possible? Yes. No, I, right. But the forces that are pushing it, no, not right. so much. I mean, I, think, I, I make the argument in more nationalist Israeli circles that if we're serious about annexation, the first move we have to make is just to start paying Palestinian civil servants Absolutely. Israeli salaries. Yep. Like if every single bus driver, police officer, hospital worker, teacher, etc., in Ramallah and in Janine and Tulkaram and Jericho were to start receiving alongside their PA salary an Israeli check in the mail mm-hmm. of the same number that an Israeli working that job is making each month, then we're taking responsibility. I think t- sovereignty is not just about rights. Sovereignty is about responsibility. And I think at the end of the day, the, the Jewish people want, and I want, Judea and Samaria to be part of our country. Mm-hmm. We need to take responsibility for not only the land, but also the people in it. Absolutely. And I think any gesture uh, or that's a statement of responsibility creates the, uh, in my opinion, the ability for Palestinians to start to perceive us as something different than as they've been perceiving us. Correct, 100%. And I think that that's really one of the, uh, that's why I think your work is so important for changing this, because I think that a lot of people, even those, those that are, the, who are pro-sovereignty, pro-annexation, like they think that it means something completely else. They think that it means like, oh, finally fulfilling X, you know, finally fulfilling doing this. Or, but they don't realize that they can't just ignore the Palestinians into oblivion. It's not going to work. Right. They're not going to leave. Well, well, I'll tell you what I think is really happening. I think yeah. those of us, what we'll call like the ideological national camp in Israeli society, which mm-hmm. I'm a part of, 
um, you know, in Israel, when somebody says the right in Israeli society, yeah. they mean there, there are two different camps we can call the right in Israeli society. One of them, like Avigdor Lieberman and Bibi Netanyahu, and I'd say even Naftali Bennett, are kind of like this westernized conservative right. Yeah, secular right. Right, but even with Kipot, I mean, you have yeah, people. Sure. Where you have people who are. It's not a, always a religious, non-religious distinction, but I think there are people who are very westernized. Uh, some with kipot, some without, but people who are very westernized, who have very neoliberal economics, who are very security-oriented, and who really want to identify with right-wing forces in other countries. Mm-hmm. Then you have the ideological national camp, which are more just Jews who are living the story of Jewish history, who are like living in that story and relating to modern political events within the context of this broader story that we've been experiencing you know, throughout history. And I think that most of the Jews, especially most of the activists living in the West Bank, I think fall into the latter camp. Most of the people in the annexation camp fall into the latter camp. And I think the truth is it's not that they like or hate Palestinians. It's that Palestinians are peripheral to our story. Absolutely. Our story is really about the return of the Jewish people to our land after 2,000 years and resisting those forces trying to displace us again. Absolutely. Palestinians happen to have been caught up in all that and, and it's easy, especially like since the Second Intifada, I think it's been very easy to relate to Palestinians as like this enemy population in our land that, you know, we're going to have to be tough with and our government is too soft on them and that's why, you know, we get killed or, you know, in, in terror attacks or drive-by shootings or whatever. But the space exists to, the, to relate to Palestinians different. Like the type of Jew who is really living in Jewish history, who is living in that psychological paradigm and is concerned with the land of Israel and wants Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, to be sovereign Jewish territory and wants Gaza to be part of the state of Israel again and Sinai to be part of the state of Israel again, as I do, we can change the roles Palestinians play in our story. Mm -hmm. Meaning Palestinians can shift from antagonist to ally if we actually unpack a lot of what our core grievances and aspirations are and maybe try to engage the Palestinian story, engage actual Palestinians, figure out what their grievances and aspirations are because I'm of the opinion after being involved in this work for I guess about a decade, give or take, that we can both experience ourselves as winners in this conflict if we were to just be courageous enough to like honestly engage the other story without feeling our own story threatened. Now, beyond like the security scare, you mm-hmm. know, fear of a suicide bomber, what are the what are the mental blocks? Do you think that exist? No, I, th- I think most of the Jews who are politically active in the national camp perceive Palestinians as a hostile population that does want to kill us. Remember, the Second Intifada was a, a very traumatic event in Israeli history where most Jews living in the West Bank, especially young Jews, had you know either relatives or friends or teachers or neighbors killed. And uh, it, it was just a very clear line, like us and them. It was like these two like warring populations. It's hard to get past that, and uh, I think we can. First of all, I think it's already, that generation has already grown up, and with Second Intifada, by all accounts, ended roughly you know, at least 13, 14 years ago. Disengagement. Yeah. Um, although I don't know why that is considered to be the, like... 
No idea, but okay. that's that's that, it's like there's no end to the first Intifada. People say that it was Madrid. Some people say it was Oslo. I right. think that it's the same thing with this. No, like, so I, I could say their, their combination of you know you like to bring up Hamas's fatwa against suicide bombings yep. and and that uh, to me it's a, that to me is a line like that that's right. that's the and what year was that? Depends on who you ask. It's, it's, uh, some people will say 04, some people will say 06. Mm-hmm. I go with the 06 mm-hmm. because that's when it actually stopped. The suicide bombings actually stopped. Right, but I would say also Operation Defensive Shield when Israeli soldiers went back into Palestinian cities, into Area A, and established an intelligence network on the ground. I think that stopped a lot of it as well. Uh, I definitely don't think the disengagement stopped it, and I don't think no. the wall stopped it. No, no, definitely not. No, those, that's, those have no correlation to stopping a suicide bombing. Mm-hmm. Just like... The question is, is the second intifada in and of itself just the suicide bombings that existed? Is that the, is that the time period in which we're talking about? Is that, that the defining characteristic? Well, the road shootings. Right. There's more a to war. it. I mean, it was, it was a war. Guerrilla war-ish. Yeah, but, yeah. It, but, but it was like a like whereas the first intifada could be seen as a protest movement. Definitely civil disobedience. Right. The they second very intifada di- was not that. Very different consciousness in Palestinian society too. Mm-hmm. Very different. If you ask Palestinians... You know, what was a moment of unity? Because unity is something that Palestinians say, like, the reason why we, why we fail is because we have lack of unity. Ask them, when do you, have, when do you last have unity? They'll say, first intifada. They'll say, well, why, why didn't you have the second intifada? They say, well, it's actually the lack of unity that existed because of the returnees, the people that came with the Palestinian Authority. From Tunisia. From Tunisia, from somewhere right. still in Lebanon, somewhere in Jordan. Like somewhere Arafat. For Arafat, and yeah. His men. Arafat and his men. Those people are called returnees. Um, and so because of that, that, I, that entity, the Palestinian Authority, um, and it's larger, the PLO, they were trying to create unity around themselves. And that unity was foreign to Palestinians because while Palestinians supported the PLO, um, they still, there was a, there's a difference between the diaspora PLO and the internal PLO. So, the, so there, was a big, there was unity among the internal PLO, people that were in the territories. Um, during the first Intifada, once the returnees came, that created a disunity. That's created the camps that we now that we still deal with now. Um, and I would say that Hamas is an output of what happens with a weakened internal PLO, mm-hmm. because basically the external PLO, you know, crushed them with I would say American and Israeli support. And then what happened was basically Hamas filled that that vacuum. And so that's right. what we deal with. I mean, uh, for me, the ideal, of course, would be a one-state solution with oh. PLO or Hamas. Shh, don't but, tease me. But, but tell me, how, how do, in your experience, how do Palestinians relate to figures like Yasser Arafat in this case, or, or the PLO? Meaning, is Arafat a hero of Palestinian society, in your opinion, or is he somebody who is considered to have brought trouble to the country and, and uh, created more hardships and more separations? People will not like this analogy, but I'll give it anyways. And uh, so I, I want to see your reaction as I say it. How... Uh, how was David Ben-Gurion? I think he was a very hard, autocratic leader mm-hmm. that uh, did a lot of things I'm not comfortable with, mm-hmm. both to Jews and Palestinians. You know, whether we're talking about the Saison, we're talking about the Atalena, we're talking about the Nakba. Mm-hmm. But again, after what the Jewish people had experienced only a few years earlier, uh, it could be that he was the leader we needed. This sounds exactly what Palestinians will say when you ask them about Arafat. Now, you'll find some people that you know, absolutely love Arafat. Mm-hmm. You know, deep down, no matter what he did, it was right. Just like you find people that will apologize for Ben-Gurion for the next thousand years. You're going to find the same people about Palestinians and Arafat. You're going to find people that, no matter what he did, it was awful and it was wrong. And then you have the, then you have the people that say, you know, he did the best he could, basically. Like, what more could you have expected out of the man? Now, I say, as time goes on, they're becoming more critical about what Arafat was and what he represents. 
And I would say part of that is a boss's fault because a boss is nowhere as charismatic, is nowhere as um, ideological, per, like perceived to be ideological mm-hmm. as, a, as Arafat was. Um, and so in many ways, a boss is ruining Arafat's um, legacy. That being said, I mean, Arafat, people project a lot uh, on him very heavily, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, uh, what he was and what he believed in. And I think at the end of the day, I think one of the big things that's very convenient between Ben-Gurion and Arafat is that they're both opportunists. They both were trying to seize an opportunity for the betterment of their people or their perceived betterment of their people. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, Ben-Gurion is more successful. Arafat was riding a wave. Yes, do I think Arafat really believed in two states? No. Do I think that he believed in it at the time because he thought that that was the best way to consolidate his power and stay in power? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a few years ago, WikiLeaks yeah. revealed that Arafat had been an asset of Kissinger, mm-hmm. which means we're going back to the 1970s. 70s, 74. Right. Now something recently came out with Abbas being uh, an asset or an agent, I forget, of the Soviets. Yep. H- how much foreign influence exists within the PLO leadership over the decades to what extent can we see the PLO serving the agendas of the United States or the Soviet Union during the Cold War? And to what extent can we see the Palestinian Authority serving the agendas of foreign powers today? I'm, I'll work backwards. Because okay. um, I think it's very illustrative about uh, what... This is one of the biggest rebukes against the Palestinian Authority is their connections to the Americans specifically. People, so the main two funders of the Palestinian Authority, the United States was up until Donald Trump took over... Um, presence of the United States, but right now it's now it's the European Union. So I would say that with that agenda, that money is not free. That money comes with terms and conditions. Well, just like the money Israel receives, right? Um, so they have to buy American-made weapons. They have to use X amount of security services. They have to. They can't use it on things like agriculture and education. It has to be used for specific purposes. So if you look at the Palestinian budget, um, well over a third of it is for security forces. The Palestinian Authority doesn't have an army. These are not. These are not. This is not an army. It's officially a, police. They're officially. It's it's police plus. Mm-hmm. They're to. They are to protect the Palestinian Authority. That's what their whole point of existence is. You see them on the streets. Whenever a bus needs to go from one place to another, they have. They line the streets with them every you know fifteen twenty feet. There's a there's a PSF, a Palestinian Security Force, um, and they have you know tons of really nice Suburbans with the decked out cars, all this kind of stuff. So you have those. So you have that money. So then with the Europeans, their money is tied to what's you know, economic development or things like that. These are very fixed projects that are written by Europeans for European NGOs to hire Palestinians to do in Palestine. So this money... And, and all the Palestinians receiving this money have to officially endorse a two-state solution. Generally speaking, yes. If you accept money from the European Union, absolutely. No question about that. You have to. It's part of the guidelines. It's, this is not, it's not even hidden. This is not like a big secret conspiracy I'm, unveil- I'm unveiling here. Everybody knows this. If you have the money for the Americans, same exact thing. Um, same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So you think that anybody in Palestinian society, anybody with an NGO, let's say a peace NGO even, mm-hmm. in Palestinian society that is accepting money from the United States government or European governments has to, in order to receive that money, sign on to a two-state agenda. Correct. Not only that, they actually can't support BDS as well. This is something that causes a thorn for some people. Um, then also, too, so it's not, not just governments, but there are actual, like, funders, European funders or Germ- American foundations or um, German foundations or Belgian foundations that also have these terms and conditions as part of their grants that they give to Palestinian organizations. This absolutely exists. This is, again, not controver- it's controversial, but it's not hidden. Everybody knows about it. 
Um, so yeah, you have to, you have to, you can't support things that are outside the two-state paradigm. Mm -hmm. You have to officially, as an organization, have your board of directors endorse a two-state solution. And if this money wasn't coming in, and the, and if this money didn't come with the strings that it comes with, you think there'd be a lot less support for a two-state solution in Palestinian society? Absolutely. I mean, just American American funding, um, official governmental funding to the Palestinian Authority is zero at this point. It's been zero for a year and a half, two years. The rise of one state, even within that period of time, it's gone. The support for it has gone up. Now, this is a this is a this is a weaning process. People are so used to it, and what's happening now is that businesses are going. Businesses are doing very poorly. The Palestinian Authority just made just had their first full paycheck in nine months. So for nine months, people have been living on half on half salaries. If you're if you're a Palestinian Authority employee, which is over thirty two percent of the population. 50% of the population is dependent on somebody who has a Palestinian Authority salary. Grandparents, people who are disabled, people who just can't work for whatever reason, children. Former prisoners. Former prisoners. 50% of people are dependent on a Palestinian salary of some sort. And these salaries have been half for the average civil servant. Of course, Abbas is not taking half for you know, his number one. They're not, they're not taking these. They're not taking the half salaries. But... The average civil servant, the teachers, the trashmen, the police, things like that have been taking half salaries. Sounds like a great opportunity for the state of Israel to come in and start paying civil servant salaries in Palestinian territories. You and I both see this as a huge opportunity, and yet I think we're the only two. And it's really unfortunate because it seems so obvious. Mm. I don't understand I mean, why we wouldn't want to do it. Yeah, that's, that's a stage. You start paying the civil servants to do their jobs because they're still doing the jobs. Mm -hmm. They're still picking up the trash. They're still policing. They're still doing all this kind of stuff. Kids are still going to school. Why wouldn't you want them to be paid? And also, too, I mean, the disparity between sal between salaries. I know you ask me all the time, like, what does a teacher make here and a teacher make there? The average, the average teacher in Palestinian society right now is around 2,600 2, shekels per month. Mm -hmm. There are no taxes. You should know that, by the way. There are no taxes in the West Bank. Well, not under the Palestinian Authority. There's no taxes on income. Um, so 2,600 shekels. The average Israeli teacher, the last I checked, was around 11,500 11, shekels per month. So this is a... More than four to one difference. So, you know, this wouldn't, it's not like a big bank breaker. And yet, this would be such a huge, huge symbolism. And it may, imagine getting your salary four times as much as it was before for doing your job and being appreciated mm -hmm. for what you've been doing and what you've been contributing to, your, to the society. It's a huge opportunity. And every month that goes by, I'm, I'm you know, befuddled by this. It seems so simple to me. No, I, I think I'm not a complicated man either. <laughs> All right, well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. This is Yudha Kohen, Brit Chazon Vision Magazine. Be sure to check out the show notes at visionmag.org backslash the next stage.